welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the December 18th reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in the sports world, both on and off the field. A lot to unpack this week, so let's jump right in. We're going to start with some really crazy goings-on with Draymond Green. He was suspended indefinitely, and here's what we know about the latest incident. This article by Kendra Andrews, and she is a news services staff writer for ESPN. It came out on December 14th on ESPN.com. Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green has been suspended again for his on-court behavior, but this time it comes without a time frame for his return. The NBA suspended Green indefinitely last Tuesday, one day after the four-time champion struck Phoenix Suns center Yusef Nurkic in the face in the third quarter of the Warriors' 119-116 loss. Green will be required to meet certain league and team conditions before he returns to play. The decision to suspend Green comes less than a month after he was suspended for five games for putting Minnesota Timberwolves center Rudy Gobert in a headlock during a November 14th game. Green has been ejected three times this season. In addition to the incidents against Phoenix and Minnesota, he was tossed on November 11th for picking up two technical fouls against the Cleveland Cavaliers. There are big questions surrounding Green, but also the Warriors. Golden State sits outside the Western Conference play in 11th place with a 10-13 and 13 record and will have to navigate the foreseeable future without one of its top stars. So here's what we know, and what's next? for Green and the Warriors. This is Green's history of suspensions. This is the sixth career suspension for Green and the second one this season. No other NBA player has received one this season. This ban would be longer, but the indefinite ban surprised some in the organization. Green, Warriors general manager Mike Levy Jr., and Green's agent Rich Paul, are expected to meet to discuss a path of counseling and assistance for Green to move forward. And those uh, news items came from ESPN's Adrian Warzanowski. The league avoided putting a specific number on the suspension to allow Green time to deal with the challenges that he's facing. But what have the Warriors said about his behavior? After Green's suspension for the Gobert headlock, Warriors coach Steve Kerr said Green's actions were inexcusable. It was the sharpest criticism that Kerr had for Green, at least publicly, in any of his incidents. He took it too far, Kerr said about that episode. Raymond was wrong. He knows that. It's a bad look, and the five games are deserved. Following Tuesday's altercation with Nurchik, Kerr said, we need him. We need Draymond. He knows that. We've talked to him. He's got to find a way to keep his poise and be out there for his teammates. But 13 years into Green's career, the question is how? As Green swung and hit Nurchik in front of the Warriors bench in Phoenix, no one from Golden State jumped to his defense. And during the Warriors post-game news conference, no one defended his actions. 
No one condemned them either. Now the warriors are in a holding pattern with green, and patience is wearing thin over the repeated altercations. So what's the financial impact of Green's suspension? It depends upon how many games Green, who was re-signed to a four-year, $100 million contract with a player option in the final season this summer, ultimately has to sit out. According to ESPN's Bobby Marks, Green will lose $1,000... Green will lose $153,941 per game if he is suspended fewer than 20 games. But if it's more than 20 games, he'll lose $202,922 per game. With Green sideline, the team will save on its luxury tax bill. At the very minimum, Golden State will save $519,555 towards the tax for every game that Green is suspended. There could also be roster implications for the Warriors. According to the collective bargaining agreement, if Green's suspension seems he can be transferred from Golden State's list of active players to a suspended list. This would drop the number of active roster members for the Warriors from 14 to 13, opening up a spot to sign another player. So who in the lineup will take his place? The question about the Warriors' rotation was already on the table before Green's suspension. But those conversations were about whether Thompson or Andrew Wiggins, both of whom have struggled this season in the starting lineup, should be replaced. The leading candidates for their minutes are Jonathan Kuminga, Moses Moody, and Brandon Podzimski. Kerr is more likely to turn to Kuminga, someone who provides more athleticism than the others and has also been a stable in the closing lineup in the past several games. However, Kuminga isn't viewed as a green replacement. Their skill sets are drastically different. Chris Paul, who was viewed as a sixth man when he joined the Warriors this summer, could be another option for the starting lineup with some level of ball handling and facilitating, which Green was providing. The NBA is making Draymond Green's incidents its business now. This article by Brian Windhorst, he's a senior writer for ESPN, and it came out on December 14th. As the video clip of Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green striking Phoenix Suns center Yusuf Nurchik in the face played repeatedly on phones and televisions, it was easy to miss one of the more disappointing aspects of the incident. Green, in his own words, described Tuesday's flagrant foul two and third ejection in 15 games this season as an accident and even chalked it up to committed by holding his hip. But with Nurchik face down on the court, Green didn't appear to express a hint of remorse. As the NBA League office grappled with how to handle the emotional response to the latest Green incident, that cold reaction can't be ignored. In the wake of his five-game suspension for grabbing Minnesota Timberwolves center Rudy Gobert by the neck last month, Green said, I don't live my life with regrets. That Green is racking up ejections and suspensions is problematic, of course. The NBA's decision to make this suspension indefinite and combine it with a process that will involve counseling shows the concern is less about punishment and more about trying to focus on the cause. 
Am I collecting the lesson that I need to collect from this? Green said on November 26th when his first suspension this season ended. The reality is that the lesson people think you need is never the right one because they don't know anything about you. The message and the lesson is 100% no one's business. The NBA is making it its business. Nurchik did eventually get a tepid apology from Green post-game. That is more than was offered to Gobert or to Sacramento Kings forward Domantas Sabonis when Green was suspended for one game for stomping on Sabonis's chest in April during the playoffs. As Green explained then, I got to land my foot somewhere. For the Warriors, an entire apology operation has been in place for years for Green's behavior. Green will do something offensive, large or small, and the Warriors fall into a routine. Coach Steve Kerr will apologize for him. Former general manager Bob Myers would apologize for him, and the public relations staff would do so too. It's not so much about the perfunctory nature of the gesture, it's that for all these incidents, technical fouls, fines, and suspensions over the years, Green's behavior has not varied that much. His continued actions don't indicate that he's very sorry for much of anything. This is what the NBA is trying to address with this latest suspension announcement process that they've intentionally left vague. Whether it works, that's another matter. At the very least, it will mute the news cycle that was ready to react with whatever number of games Green received had it been a traditional suspension. But it's also an admission that simply ramping up penalties isn't working. It's something that we're working hard on behind the scenes. Raymond has to find a way not to cross the line. And I'm not talking about getting an ejection or getting a technical. I'm talking about the physical act of violence. That's inexcusable. We have to do everything we can to give him the help and assistance that he needs to draw that distinction. Kerr said this on November 16th, but this quote could have been from any number of times in the past decade. The Warriors gave Green a $100 million deal in July, making it clear the concerns on the matter have their limits. Last year, after Green punched teammate Jordan Poole in a preseason practice, Green announced that he was taking some time away to, quote, continue to work on myself, end quote. Green was back in time for ring night. He has now been suspended four times since. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver and Executive Vice President Joe Dumars, the so-called discipline czar and one of the most well-respected men in the league office, are trying to get Green to examine ways that he can break this cycle. They've come up with this unusual penalty to try to force change. They're trying to help the Warriors develop a way to manage Green's issues, whether the team wanted the assistance or not. They're trying to make this last suspension of Green's likely Hall of Fame career. Good luck. Here's some sad news in the basketball world. Hall of Famer and ABA champion George McGinnis dies at 73. This article by ESPN News Services and the Associated Press, it came out on December 14th and published worldwide. George McGinnis, a Hall of Fame forward who was the two-time ABA champion and three-time All-Star in both the NBA and the ABA, has died at the age of 73. 
The Indiana Pacers said McGinnis died early Thursday morning following complications from a cardiac arrest suffered last week at his home. McGinnis also struggled to walk in recent years after undergoing multiple back surgeries because of a hereditary condition. His uniquely deep, deliberate voice, warm personality, and passion for the sport helped McGinnis create a tight bond with the fans around his basketball-rich home state of Indiana. They watched McGinnis' development from Indianapolis prep star into an unstoppable force in his one and only college season at Indiana before eventually taking the Pacers to those two titles. George McGinnis shaped so many of the fondest basketball memories for generations of Hoosiers, the Simon family and Pacers sports and entertainment said in a statement. He was the very definition of an Indiana basketball legend, a champion, and a Hall of Fame athlete. But he was more than that. George was family, a passion advocate for his fellow ABA players, and a present smiling face around the franchise. George has been as synonymous with our Pacers franchise as anyone, and he will be greatly missed. McGinnis put together a sterling resume that few could match, even today. It all started with McGinnis taking advantage of Spencer Haywood's Supreme Court victory in 1971 that allowed underclassmen to turn pro based on a hardship case. McGinnis wound up signing with his hometown team two years after his father had been killed when he fell off of a scaffold while working as a carpenter. McGinnis's trademark one-handed jump shot helped him become an instant cornerstone in Indiana's two title runs, as well as the Philadelphia 76ers turnaround in the mid-70s. He earned multiple All-ABA and All-NBA honors and was named the 1973 ABA Playoff MVP in just his second pro season. After making the ABA's All-Rookie Team in 1971 and 72, he took home All-NBA honors in his first season, 1975 and 76, in the more established league. McGinnis's best season came in 74 and 75 when he won the ABA scoring title with a 29.8 points per goal and finished second in steals with 2.6 with steals per game, third in assists with 6.3, per game, and fifth in rebounds at 14.3. He shared the league's MVP award with Hall of Famer Julius Irving, his future teammate in Philadelphia. For McGinnis, it was just the warm-up to a historic playoff performance that included a 51-point, 17-rebound, 10-assist triple-double, and two series in which he topped 200 points, 100 rebounds, and 50 assists. Although he didn't win a third title, he was the playoff leader in scoring 581 points, 286 rebounds, and 148 assists. Those numbers helped fuel McGinnis's next trailblazing effort, switching leagues on his terms. With the ABA struggling financially and the 76ers still holding his contractual rights two years after drafting him in 1973, McGinnis was advised to pursue more money in the NBA. McGinnis wanted to negotiate with a team of his choosing and initially signed a six-year, $2.4 million contract with the New York Knicks. That's 
heinous in today's NBA world. When NBA Commissioner Larry O'Brien voided the deal and punished the Knicks, McGinnis accepted a six-year, $3.2 million contract with the 76ers that included no cut, no trade, and no option clauses. He spent the next three seasons with the 76ers, helping them end a four-year playoff drought as home attendance increased by more than 5,000 per game in his first season. The next season, with Irving, the 76ers reached the NBA Finals before losing to the Portland Trailblazers in six games. McGinnis was traded to the Denver Nuggets in 1978, but was dealt back to the Pacers midway through the 79-80 season. He finished his 11-year career with two and a half more seasons back home in Indiana. Across the ABA and the NBA, McGinnis had 17,009 points, 9,233 rebounds, and 3,089 assists in his career, which was induct- and was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2017. At Indiana, he became the first sophomore to lead the Big Ten in scoring with 29.9 points per game and rebounding at 14.7 rebound per game earning third-team All-American honors after sitting out his freshman season because NCAA rules prohibited freshmen from competing. At Indianapolis Washington High School, McGinnis won the state's coveted Mr. Basketball Award and Mr. Basketball USA in 1969 while leading his school to the 68-69 state championship. Washington was just the third undefeated state titleist in Indiana history. McGinnis also is a member of Indiana's Athletic Hall of Fame and is one of four former Pacers players to have his jersey number retired. The Pacers said McGinnis would have a private burial and that a celebration of life would be held next year. And speaking of basketball players of years past, this article by the ESPN News Services, and it came out on December 16th, just two days ago, on ESPN.com. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar breaks his hip in a fall at an L.A. concert. NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has been hospitalized after suffering a broken hip when he fell at a concert in L.A. Abdul-Jabbar, who is 76, was taken to the hospital Friday night after falling at the undisclosed event and was slated to undergo surgery on Saturday. No other details about his condition were released. His representative, Deborah Morales, said that Abdul-Jabbar was deeply appreciative of the Los Angeles Fire Department, which treated him at the scene, and the amazing medical team and doctors at UCLA Hospital who are taking care of him. A Hall of Famer, who won NBA titles with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Los Angeles Lakers, Abdul-Jabbar is the league's only six-time MVP and was the NBA career scoring leader until his record was broken by LeBron James last February. When you want to play basketball, you're willing to go anywhere. This article came out today, December 18th, by the ESPN staff. Four-time NBA All-Star Center DeMarcus Cousins has signed a deal with the Taiwan Beer Leopards. 
In a video posted to the team's official Facebook page on Monday, Cousins said in a message to the fans in Taiwan that he is excited to come over and put on a show for you. Sources told ESPN's Adrian Warzanowski that Cousins' agreement with the Beer Lippers is for a 10-day and four-game period. He's expected to join the team in mid-January. We are confident that with Cousins' all-around skills, he'll bring a totally new chemistry to the Lippers, says team CEO Johnny Chang. Cousins, who's 33, has not played in the NBA since the 2021-22 seasons with the Denver Nuggets. He most recently played for the Gayambo Mets of the Puerto Rican Professional League earlier this year. The 6'10 Cousins was an all-star in four consecutive seasons with the Sacramento Kings and the New Orleans Pelicans starting in 2015, but a series of knee injuries impacted his career trajectory. He has averaged 19.6 points and 10.2 rebounds over parts of 11 NBA seasons with seven different teams. Cousins is not the first former NBA star to join the Leopards, who also signed eight-time All-Star center Dwight Howard last year. We've all heard about Yoshi Otani and how he's compared to, and in some ways even better than Babe Ruth, and how he just signed this huge deal with the L.A. Dodgers and deferred a lot of that money, which is really about taxes and salary caps and all that. Well, here's another Japanese phenom that is going to become a free agent. This article by Jeff Basson, he is a senior writer for ESPN. It came out today, December 18th on ESPN.com. How Yoshinobu Yamamoto became baseball's most coveted free agent. Yoshinobu Yamamoto's bag of tricks is an actual bag. Inside it, he carries a yoga mat, wooden blocks, tiny soccer balls, and mini javelins. When he's ready, the 25-year-old Yamamoto lays out his yoga mat, arches himself into a backbend, and pretzels his body with the precision of a contortionist. He lifts himself into headstands and corkscrews his hips and legs. He pushes up into handstands and walks on his palms towards a wall against which he can lean and balance on one hand. He steadies himself on the blocks to get the feel for his body's positioning, and when he's done with that, he stands up and chucks the size one soccer balls onto a wall to warm up his right arm. He then heads to the field to fling the javelins distances inconceivable to his teammates who try to replicate the practice and chuckle at their comparative ineptitude. None of this is the typical training regimen for a pitcher, for most athletes, really, but particularly not in baseball, a paint-by-number sort of sport that sneers at anything out of the ordinary. There is room for independent thinkers, for those who dare try something different, but it comes along with a prerequisite. Greatness. Yamamoto has earned the right to carry the black duffel. Not only is he a great pitcher, but arguably the greatest ever in Nippon professional baseball. He won three straight MVP awards and three consecutive Sawamira awards, Japan's equivalent of the Cy Young. Now he is the best free agent in Major League Baseball, 
one inspiring a bidding war among the game's most moneyed teams that's expected to conclude before the new year and perhaps as early as this week. At five foot ten and 176 pounds, Yamamoto will be among the smallest starting pitchers in Major League Baseball when he debuts next season. That's all of his strength training comes from these tools. Yamamoto does not lift weights, confounds the baseball establishment. But then he throws a baseball and runs up to he but then he throws a baseball and the questions melt away because few in the world can marry a fastball that runs up to 99 miles an hour with a splitter that drops like a hypercoaster and a curveball that breaks five and a half feet. To impart that sort of force on a baseball at that size is the domain of a select few. Pedro Martinez and Tim Lincecum, winners of five Cy Youngs between them. Everything Yamamoto does is in service of one goal, moving with purpose. As Major League Baseball teams have learned since the Oryx Buffaloes posted him November 20th, paving his way to sign with a Major League team for hundreds of millions of dollars, Yamamoto's meticulous, disciplined approach is not limited to the baseball field. Executives who have met with Yamamoto admire his preparedness. For years, he has awaited this moment. He peppered his Oryx teammates who had played in the big leagues with questions about Major League Baseball. He overhauled his delivery to eliminate a weakness that could be exploited here. This year, he sent his best friend, who serves as his assistant, to Toronto to take English classes, travel to Major League cities across the United States, and collate information that would better inform his ultimate decision. He knew what he was getting himself into going into the season, says Lars Nutabar, the St. Louis Cardinals outfielder, who befriended Yamamoto when playing for Team Japan during the World Baseball Classic. Publicly and amongst friends, he is the nicest, most caring person there is. But underneath that, he is a stone-cold killer. When he walks in a room, he's not just walking in. He knows what he's looking for. He takes notes on everything. Jacob Waguspak signed with Oryx before the 2022 season and soon learned his new teammate Yamamoto had won his first Sawamura the previous season. Waguspak, who played with the Toronto Blue Jays for two seasons, stands at six foot six, weighs two thirty-five, and sits around ninety-two miles an hour with his fastball. How someone eight inches shorter and 60 pounds lighter possessed the arsenal of Major League Baseball's best aces made no sense. I didn't know that he was that much of a real deal until I got there, Waggispack said. And then I was like, holy shit, this hype is real. Following his first season in Japan, Waggispack saw Yamamoto as one of his closest friends on the team. He watched Yamamoto walk around Osaka, where the Buffaloes play, with a hat and a mask to avoid the hordes of fans forming him. He knew that Yamamoto rarely traveled without his tiny fluffy dog, Mikan, named after Japan's famous Mandarin Orange, whose peel nearly matches the pup's fur color. And he watched his arm just kept getting better. The scouting report on Yamamoto reads something like this. Hyperathletic, elite flexibility, unlikely strength, 
ultra-fast arm, exceptional movement patterns. His fastball sits at 95 miles an hour, though velocity alone doesn't begin to describe why the pitch flummoxes hitters. Yamamoto releases the ball from a low arm slot and has exceptional carry on his fastball, meaning its pure backspin causes it to drop less than a batter expects, so it looks as if it were rising. His splitter is every bit as dangerous as Kodai Senga's vaulted ghost rising. And his curve is out of Adam Wainwright's book of Bend. His slider and cutter rarely used, but each potentially a weapon against Major League Baseball hitters. Since transitioning from the bullpen to Oryx's rotation as a 20-year-old in 2019, Yamamoto has posted a 1.65 ERA over 820 and a third innings. Batters have hit 189 against him and struck out in more than 27% of plate appearances. His walk rate is minuscule at 2 per 9 innings. His home run rate is silly at .32 per 9 innings, and his win-loss record is impressive, 65 wins over 26 losses. In the past three seasons, Yamamoto has ERAs of 1.39, 1.68, and 1.21. He faced 636 batters this year and yielded two home runs, all with a brand new delivery. He comes to camp in 2023 with a new windup, and it's like, dude, are you shitting me? Wagaspak said. He felt like he needed more momentum to the plate. The game was so easy to him, he felt like he could get better at one thing, and he did it. Gone with Yamamoto's leg lift, replaced by a slide step to the plate. Not a typical out-of-the-stretch slide step, though. Yamamoto still started in a traditional windup, only to burst towards home plate in a fashion that's almost jarring, simply because no other pitcher does it. With his lead leg barely off the ground, Yamamoto's clearest weakness, scouts had observed, was keeping runners at bay. He had long been too slow to the plate. After the change, he allowed four stolen bases all season, a quarter of what he had given up in 2022. Yamamoto was moving with a dual purpose, and his athleticism eased the evolution. His new delivery called for more explosiveness, and rather than achieve that through added bulk, he remained steadfast in his ways, relaying on a movement guru he goes by Yata Sensi, and one source familiar with his work called him a kinetics expert to design his training program. Over here, everyone puts such an emphasis on lifting weights, getting big, getting strong, says Jacob Nix, who played for the San Diego Padres before joining Oryx last uh, this year. And over there, they stretch and they throw. These guys long toss almost every day. They're light days. They're still going out 200 plus feet. It's a totally different style of baseball and training than we do over here. Add it, Nutbar. It is definitely unique, not the norm here. It's not a lot of weight-bearing. It almost feels like the Tom Brady pliability, flexibility, elasticity sort of thing. He's adding strength in the positions that he's getting in, but he's always making sure he's moving at a top level. For all of Yamamoto's popularity, nobody appreciates the way that he throws as much as his peers. 
Even as he moves at high rates of speed, his head remains remarkably still throughout his delivery, eyes towards the plate. When his front foot strikes the ground, his right arm is vertical, and the right spot on every pitch, Wagenspach said, and his hips are still closed, ready to fire and carry his arms for the ride. This winter in Los Angeles, Cleveland Guardians reliever Eli Morgan and Minnesota Twins starter Joe Ryan have worked out alongside Yamamoto and marveled at his abilities. Yamamoto, along with a catcher, his best friend, and a trainer, sits in a circle with them and they stretch their hips. The soccer balls appear, as do the javelins. When Yamamoto starts playing catch from a variety of different positions, step-ins, modified crow hops, his new windup, and unleashes his four-seam fastball, Morgan can't help but gawk. It's the carry that he gets on the ball, Morgan said. As someone who throws a four-seamer myself, that's the goal. Get the ball to your partner on a frozen rope. Like everyone who sees Yamamoto, Morgan came away a believer. He's five foot ten also, and he knows it's easy for teams to get hung up on things like height. Yamamoto is also facing questions about adjusting from pitching one day a week in Japan to every fifth day in Major League Baseball, or how he'll handle a ball with lower seams and less tack, or how the looping curve will play in a league where hitters pray to see one upon which they can pray. All these concerns are valid. They're also not enough to stop the coming frenzy. When Yamamoto's intention to join Major League Baseball crystallized earlier this year, executives started guessing what it would cost to sign him. Because he is 25, Yamamoto is no longer considered an international amateur and limited by shallow signing bonus pools. Likewise, because he's 25, he is hitting free agency at an age that no pitcher, particularly not an elite one, reaches the open market. The first wave of guesses clocked in at around $175 million. By the time free agency started, teams figured that the bidding would start at $200 million. In recent weeks, it's jumped to $250 million. And recently, multiple reports suggested that teams already had offered Yamamoto deals in excess of $300 million. That's truly amazing. Those reports, sources said, are inaccurate. Multiple high-ranking officials trying to sign Yamamoto told ESPN that teams were asked to give a preliminary bid at the start of the process to ensure that they were serious, but not necessarily in the neighborhood of where the deal is likely to land. Since then, those officials say his agent, Joel Wolf, has not solicited a new round of bids. Some teams, sources said, were interested in talking dollars recently, but were asked not to do so yet. The expectation is that teams will start proposing contract terms as early as today. Yamamoto's meetings have been with a who's who of big market teams. Among the visitors to see him pitch in Japan this year were Los Angeles Dodgers president Andrew Friedman, New York Yankees general manager Brian Cashman, San Francisco Giants President Farhan Zahidi, and Chicago Cubs President Jed Hoyer. Less than two weeks ago, the New York Mets owner Steve Cohen and President David Stearns flew to Japan for dinner with Yamamoto and his mother. 
They all wanted to see up close what they'd long heard from afar. Yamamoto is special well beyond the other worldly numbers that he puts up annually and sojourning halfway around the world to indicate the seriousness of their interest was a small price. Since Yamamoto came to the United States this winter, among those reported to have de- entertained him are the Philadelphia Phillies, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Red Sox, along with the Mets and Yankees, each twice, which will only fuel the talk of a $300 million deal. The question is whether it reaches that number before or after the inclusion of the posting fee, which for a $250 million contract would be $39.4 million, or at $300 million would be $46.9 million. The overall dollar figure also will depend on Yamamoto's priorities. Because of his age, he could sign a seven-year deal and hit free agency again at 32. He could target a 10-year contract but request an opt-out after the fourth season and be back on the market at 29. Teams should try to lock him up to a lifetime deal a dozen years or more, and that would dampen the competitive balance tax hit by lowering the average annual value of the contract. What's clear is that, like with his countrymen and WBC teammate Shohei Otani, the power to dictate terms is in Yamamoto's hands. For the concerns about moving to Major League Baseball, he needed only point to Otani. Mets starter Kode Singa and others whose moves to MLB went off with only minor hitches. Even with a free agent market that still has National League Cy Young winner Blake Snell and a trade market feature and trade market featuring Cy Young winners in Corbin Burns and Shane Bieber, along with Dylan Cease, Yamamoto is the clear top choice of baseball's biggest spenders. All of it trickles new to bar. Even if the Cardinals are on the outside looking in, he feels a kinship with Yamamoto that dates to the WBC. Newt Barr was born and raised in California, but joined Samari, Japan because of his mom, Kumiko grew up in the prefecture next to Tokyo. At first, Nutbar said the language bearer felt like an impediment, something Yamamoto noticed. He invited Nutbar to dinner with the team's young stars, right-handers Roki Sasaki and, Hiro- and Hiroto Takahashi, left-hander Hiroa Mayagi, and third baseman Munitaka Murikami, along with Ippi Mizuhara. Otani's interpreter. Everything they did meant so much, Nutbar said. They were doing it for me, but they were also doing it for the team. And that's why he goes through the process. I know he's going to make the right choice. He's concerned about the right things in his life. Whatever Yamamoto lands or wherever he lands, he'll pack his stuff, including his bag, and head off to the best baseball league in the world, the truest test of how good he really is. Whatever happens when he arrives, if it's anything like how he handles the rest of his life, it will be purposeful and it will be great. And as Mr. Yamamoto signs a deal and we hear news from him, you'll certainly hear it here on Sports News. All right, let's turn our attention to football for a moment. There's always some craziness going on in football. 
This article by the Associated Press came out on December 16th, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Cleveland. Cleveland Brown star defensive end Miles Garrett was facing a $25,000 fine by the NFL for public criticism of officiating after he made pointed remarks following last week's game against Jacksonville. Garrett was informed of the fine on Saturday and angered by the Jags at not being penalized for holding him. Garrett called the officiating a travesty following Cleveland's 31-27 win and said that it's time for the officials to be held to a higher standard. Someone has to hold them accountable for the plays or the calls that they don't make, he said, and they need to be under the same kind of microscope as we are on every single play. Garrett's frustration had been building as what he feels is a lack of penalties being called against offensive linemen who are blocking him. He has been stuck on 13 sacks for three weeks and believes the officials haven't been treating him fairly. It had been something that had been stoked for the last couple of weeks, and then other rushers have been also dealing with the same thing, Garrett said following Friday's practice. I can only speak for myself. But once you've got a whole position kind of fed up of how they're being treated, and then you know something is kind of off. Pittsburgh's T.J. Watt, another of the league's elite pass rushers, recently made similar comments to Garrett's. On Friday, Garrett said that he did not regret his outburst. Absolutely not, he said, adding that he doesn't fear any backlash. Right now, I'm not getting any calls, though it can't get much worse than that, the four-time pro bowler said. I hope it has a positive effect. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I just want them to do their job to the best of their ability. Brown's coach Kevin Stefanski had no issues with the dominant Garrett speaking his mind. We're not the thought police, he said. Our guys can voice their opinions. I remind the officials of it every game, just so that they're aware that the teams are going to be doing everything in their power to slow down number 95, and that's what they're talking about in their building. So when he's been clearly restricted, we expect it to be called. The Browns, who are 8-5, and five, who are trying to make the playoffs for just the second time since 2002, host the Chicago Bears on Sunday. The last time the teams played in 2021, Garrett recorded a career-high four-and-a-half sacks, and the Browns sacked quarterback Justin Fields nine times in a 26-6 win. And speaking of fines, this article is published by the ESPN News Services, also on December 16th on ESPN.com. Philadelphia's Eagles security chief Dom DeSandro will not have sideline access for the remainder of the regular season, but he might return during the playoffs. DeSando was barred from being on the Eagles sideline for the last three games at the Dallas Cowboys after he got into a sideline scuffle with San Francisco's 49ers linebacker Dree Greenlaw the previous week. The NFL sent a memo to all teams last week reminding them to, quote, please ensure that all members of your game day staff understand that their role does not extend to being involved with game day altercations and that they must refrain from such involvement, end quote. Greenlaw was fined $10,927 last week for the hit on Eagles wide receiver Devonta Smith that led to the sideline scrap. 
The Associated Press first reported news on DeSanto's regular season sideline ban a little earlier in the day. This was an amazing game. This article is by Paul Gutierrez. He's a staff writer for ESPN. It came out on December 14th from Las Vegas, four days after bottoming out with a 3 nothing loss to the Minnesota Vikings in the lowest-scoring indoor game in NFL history. The Las Vegas Raiders balled out against the Los Angeles Chargers, beating their AFC rival 63-21 to on last Thursday night while setting a franchise record for points scored in a game. The 63 points were the third most by a team in the Super Bowl era and the second most in NFL history by a team that was shut out in its previous game, one behind the 64 points of the 1934 Eagles had against the Cincinnati Reds. The Raiders also scored the most points in a primetime game since the 1970 AFL-NFL merger. From 0 to 63? I was into it, Raiders interim coach Antonio Pierce said of the blue mood that enveloped the team after Sunday's loss. I had to slap myself to get out of the funk, and the players got me out of the funk. They brought me along, and hell, we kicked some ass today. It became a frenzy. It was a complete demolition as the Raiders ended a three-game losing streak to improve to 6-8 and eight while scoring seven touchdowns on offense and two on defense. They had five takeaways, scoring a touchdown after each one. The Raiders' 35 points off of takeaways are tied for the most this century, equaling the 2013 Kansas City Chiefs at the Raiders and the 2012 New England Patriots at the Jets in the infamous butt-fumble game. The Raiders led 42 to nothing at halftime. When receiver Jacoby Myers hit Devontae Adams for a three-yard touchdown pass to put the Raiders up 49-0 in the third quarter, Myers became the first non-quarterback this century to throw a pass with his team up by at least 40 points. Myers also became the second Raiders player in franchise history with a passing touchdown and a receiving touchdown in the same game, joining Hall of Fame running back Marcus Allen in 1983 against the Seattle Seahawks. With the Miami Dolphins beating the Denver Broncos 70-20 in Week 3, this is the first season in which multiple teams have scored at least 60 points since 1972. He was on the other side of a shutout last week, and it, and it felt a certain way, Pierce said. No apologies here. Sorry. I found this article while searching the Sports Illustrated website for uh, articles to read. And this is a lot of fun. So we're going to end on this note. This article by Charlotte Wilder came out on November 5th of 2029 in Sports Illustrated. The extremely true story of the cat that streaked the field at MetLife Stadium. For those of you who missed the moment during last night's Monday night football game, now remember this is in 2019, we saw a black cat streak across the field, briefly stopping the game in the second quarter. Here is the cat's very true story. Shelly Whiskers waited her whole life for that moment, for her moment, the one where she'd be able to streak across the field at MetLife Stadium in front of thousands of people live 
and millions of viewers watching at home. Seconds before the New Jersey Cat made her appearance at the Giants game against the Cowboys on Monday Night Football, fellow Cat fans reported seeing her beneath the bleachers, her tail twitching, her green eyes glowing with determination and a sense of purpose greater than herself, greater than her family, greater than football, greater than America. This, an act of defiance, grace, and bravery, was for any cat who'd ever been told something wasn't plausible. So when the time was right, whiskers pounced. If you were watching, you know. You saw the black feline burst onto the scene during the second quarter. Whiskers juked the security guards, confused the groundspeople, and delayed play while she flirted with the end zone. She exhibited perfect form, tensing her haunches and tucking her little kitty paws beneath her fuzzy tummy as she leapt, floated, rather, across the turf. Sports Twitter erupted with puns and cats across the country climbed into television stands, twitching their tails in solidarity, pawing at their owners' television screens. Finally, some feline representation in sports. So who is Whiskers, and where did she come from? Unfortunately, she has yet to emerge from the depths of MetLife Stadium, where she took refuge after last night's performance. When I tried to go out to MetLife Stadium to look for her myself, I was denied access. Representatives told me, quote, we are not doing any cat interviews on site today, and we will update everyone if and when we locate the cat, end quote. But after extensive interviews with Whiskers' families and friends, I've been able to piece together a picture of this cat's extraordinary life and her brief yet glorious time in the spotlight. The bleachers weren't a place from where a cat wanted to be. The most privileged cats, the ones that were combed daily and fed expensive organic food marketed to their owners on Instagram, grew up in houses full of soft surfaces to sleep on and cat trees to scratch. But the bleachers were home for whiskers, those cement stairs littered with empty cans, peanut shells, and hardened nacho cheese shaped her. Shelly really had to learn how to adapt, says Market Swatzalot, a tabby cat who grew up with whiskers. He sat on a bar stool at the Meow Inn, a dive bar for cats located under the nearby Meadowland racetrack stands. A scar cuts across the fur above his right eye, and he's developed a bit of a paunch, but you can tell that he was once a perfect-looking guy. There was something special about her. She was an incredible athlete, but she had the star power, too. During gym class, she'd leap higher than everyone else when, they, when the felt toy came out, and she did it with a flourish. It was hard to look away when Shelley jumped. Gym class became somewhat of an escape for young Whiskers, whose home life under the bleachers wasn't easy. Her father, Mr., worked nights at a local bodega, meowing at customers who came by to buy a lighter or a bag of chips. Sometimes they'd drop him a piece of pepperoni from a slice of pizza, but most nights he came home empty-pawed. Whiskers' mother fluffily disappeared when she was very young. It's been tough, yeah, said Mr., who's more gray than black now and speaks with a thick Brooklyn accent, even though he's been in New Jersey for all of his lives. I think Fluffy's going away was a turning point for Shelley. When she realized that life is short and anything can happen at any moment, that's when she started training. That's when she decided that one day she would be a star. While many of the cats that Whiskers grew up with told her that she was crazy, 
Chi persevered, hitting the gym more and appearing at the Meow Inn less and less. During Giants and Jets practices, she watched the wide receivers rehearse their quick cutbacks and forth across the gridiron, taking copious notes. She took a special liking to Odell Beckham Jr. and his one-handed catches, which reminded her of the way Fluffy used to swat at the bugs that buzzed around MetLife on warm summer days. While catching a football was out of the question because Whiskers doesn't have thumbs, she still sneaked out onto the field to practice the routes that Beckham ran, and she planned to emulate him when her time came. And then Beckham left New York for Cleveland last offseason. Whiskers had already suffered the loss of her mother, and now she had to say goodbye to the man who brought her joy, who inspired her. Beckham's departure nearly broke Whiskers. She made a rare appearance at the Meow Inn, which was the last time that her friends saw her. She was a mess, Wasselot said. I miss her every day, Elsie added, cracking open a can of food for a nearby patron. On Monday night, however, Whiskers' friends' fears were assuaged. The cats who never stopped loving her watched her complete her life's mission on the biggest stage this country has to offer. Mr. meowed in the bodega as his daughter captured the hearts of America, and Elsie and Swasola put their paws around each other when she appeared on the television screen. We knew she was waiting for prime time, Elsie said. We just didn't know when it would be. As we realized it was happening, I felt happier than at a time I knocked a vase of flowers off a table, and that's saying something. To the rest of the country, this may have seen an adorable stray startled by fan noise who lost her way in a vast stadium. But Whiskers' family and friends saw a triumph. This was no catastrophe. There was no need for sympathy. This was everything the Whiskers had ever wanted. Shelley taught us that no matter who you are, a pampered house cat or a stray from MetLife, you should always chase your tail, Mr. said before he darted out into the New Jersey streets. I mean your dreams. Definitely chase your dreams, not your tail. And that's about all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.